time for another question show. I'm in the house now with this computer graphic rendered house and photographs. The technology is astonishing. Uh, so we've got a special guest question answerer. So you're gonna wanna stick around to the end. You're gonna love this uh, addition to the QA. All right, let's get on with the questions. As always, wherever you are on my channel, go ahead, if you've got a question about space and astronomy, type it in, I'll gather them up and answer them here. Let's get started. Damien Reloaded. Regarding attempting to create black holes in the LHC, given the cosmic radiation is orders of magnitude stronger than anything we can produce inside the LHC, wouldn't it be a better idea to try and detect them in the upper atmosphere or in space? This is a great thing, you know, when people talk about the risks of the Large Hadron Collider and they're worried that, that if the LHC is going to smash atoms together with so much energy that it's going to tear open the fabric of reality and destroy the universe, collisions of that strength are happening across the universe naturally. I mean, not to mention supernovae, but as you said, you've got at cosmic rays that are coming in from space at energies way higher than anything that could ever be made in the LHC. They're smashing into the atmosphere and they're falling apart. Now, this is really cool. One of the really cool things is this thing called Cherenkov radiation, and there's a special kind of telescope that can detect these cosmic rays as they hit the atmosphere and then they split up into a bunch of particles that reach the ground and they're going so fast that in fact the time dilation is part of the equation as astronomers are calculating and detecting these cosmic rays. So it's, it's an amazing science. I highly recommend that you look into, the, into this. It's called Cherenkov radiation. We actually did an episode of Astronomy Cast all about it and maybe I'll do an episode here about it as well. Joseph Kanakovnovic. Whenever I hear about space discovery, it's about NASA. NASA, NASA, NASA. History books also mention Soviet successes like Sputnik and Gagarin. But what about the other countries? Did they ever do anything worth mentioning? For instance, the Europeans, they have a third the budget of NASA, but I never hear in the mainstream media that they've done anything with it, did they? Maybe you just haven't heard the right mainstream media. Think about Rosetta, right? The Rosetta mission that landed a probe on a comet, a little Philae lander that orbited a comet. That was all over the media, and that was entirely a European mission. There's a ton of other amazing, there's a Huygens probe that was attached to Cassini that was built by the Europeans. There's a ton of really great telescopes. There's the, um, the Gaia telescope, there's the Herschel telescope, and there's upcoming telescopes as well. There is the orbiter that's at Mars, the uh, Mars Express, and the version of it that was at Venus, Venus Express. So the Europeans are producing a tremendous amount of space missions. They are contributing to international collaborations. They do a ton of work on the International Space Station. I'm amazed that you haven't heard because I mean definitely Rosetta was all over the news when it was happening and and other missions you're going to hear more about in the future. Disasterina. The fine particles of the lunar regolith really screws with spacesuits and machines. Is there any way to maybe pave the areas we're using for habitation there on the moon? Maybe shovel the snow so it's not so damaging? The lunar regolith, this is this pulverized moon rock that's been 
sort of hit by asteroids and meteorites for a long, long time has made this powder. And the problem is, is that because there's no weathering effect that goes on, like it happens here on Earth and even on Mars, this stuff is jagged. It's like tiny little pieces of glass. And as you said in your question, this stuff's going to get into machinery. This stuff's going to get into people's clothing. It's even going to get into people's lungs. And the the astronauts, when they landed on the moon, they had runny noses and they had some. They were coughing. And chances are that over long periods of time, this stuff is going to be really, really dangerous. What can we do about it? Uh, the one idea, the sort of the main idea, is to really make sure that nobody from sort of that, that stuff never gets into the whatever the lunar base is, that the astronauts will have special spacesuits that are always outside the station and they'll sort of slip into them, then they'll detach from the station, from the lunar colony, they'll walk around outside, they'll come back, but that stuff will never get inside the station, although I'm sure it's inevitable. I like your idea of like shoveling the snow, like you, you know, someone could, some rover goes out and carefully vacuums all of the terrain around the lunar base to make sure there's none of this regolith. The nice thing is there is no wind blowing. So once you've cleaned it all up, it's going to, uh, you know, you're not going to have new wind blowing. You're going to have new meteorites that are going to be pounding into the surface. But in theory, once you've sort of smoothed it down to rock and you've polished the rock, uh, you're not going to have to worry about it. But it is going to be a big problem, probably one of the biggest hazards of dealing with the lunar surface and uh, you know, a broom. Breath and a scream. Why don't we just save up a shed load of dough and build a telescope that orbits the moon? No atmosphere to create drag and could be a stable orbit as well. The moon is, is pretty hard to get to. When you think about the amount of energy that's required, it takes about, you have to be going, I think, 8.5 kilometers per second to be able to get into low Earth orbit around the Earth. And the kind of surprising thing is that it actually takes more energy to go to the moon than it does to go to Mars. So you can actually fire your rockets for you know, a shorter amount of time to get on a trajectory that's going to take you to Mars. It's going to take you longer, but it's not as much. The moon is closer, but it actually takes more energy. So the place to put a space telescope that is the least amount of energy is in low Earth orbit, like where the Hubble Space Telescope is. Once you try to put a uh, telescope up to the moon, it's a whole other level of difficulty. The one idea that I do really like is this idea of taking a telescope to the Lagrange point that's in between the Earth and the moon. It's the L1 point. And it's a relatively stable place. It's the spot where, it's kind of close to the spot where NASA is thinking of putting their deep space gateway. And it'll serve as sort of a nice stable place that's sort of at the edge of moving deeper out into the solar system and would be a neat place to put a telescope. So that's where I think is a, is a great place to put a telescope. In orbit around the moon, there's a lot of problems in putting things in orbit around the moon. It's actually not that stable because the Earth is actually pulling in from, from it more than, than you know, kind of what's happening around the moon. And so a lot of spacecraft have a hard time maintaining a long, stable orbit around the moon. Sammy Sam. We know when a big star explodes, some are universally small and others are big enough to collapse into a black hole. So is it possible for such a star to be big enough to collapse into a black hole, but for some reason failed to do so? If a star is big enough to collapse as a black hole, uh, you know, once it's past, say, eight times the mass, I think, of the sun, it's going to turn into a neutron star. Bigger than that, some of them turn into neutron stars, some of them turn into black holes, and beyond a certain point, they turn into black holes. There's some 
of these giant stars that when they collapse, they form directly a black hole and they don't actually produce a supernova. And then the other thing that's really interesting is for some of the largest ones, they explode and they don't leave a black hole behind at all. They just explode in a big cloud and there's nothing left. And, and that's just kind of mind-bending that some of the most powerful supernova actually leave no remnant at all. We did. Is there any possibility that somewhere some globular clusters exist which are so old that they now consist only of white dwarfs and neutron stars, etc.? No, not yet. The oldest globular clusters are, say, just shy of the age of the universe, which is 13 point, say, say the universe is 13.8 billion years, maybe they're a couple of hundred million years younger than the universe itself. But we know that red dwarf stars are going to live for tens of billions, hundreds of billions, trillions of years. So even if these, these globular clusters live for a long, long time, they're still going to have these red dwarf stars in them. They still won't have gotten to the point that they're white dwarfs. Now, if you move forward, say, 10 trillion years in the future, then yeah, you're going to have globular clusters where all but this, the final red dwarfs are remaining and everything else inside of it is neutron stars and white dwarfs and just cooling down dead stars, but that's a long, long way in the future. Winston Holm, the observable universe is 13.8 billion light years across. Could there be anything outside of the observable universe? Is the universe 13.8 billion years old? The observable universe, uh, and always people are going to sort of catch up on this, right? The, the farthest objects that we can see in the universe, the cosmic microwave background radiation, is around us, this kind of sphere that where the light left those regions 13.8 billion years ago. And so the light has been traveling from 13.8 billion years. And so, yeah, that is the age of the universe. Light is, is the way that you measure how old the universe is. But that's not the size of the universe. If you instantly, if you could move to one of those locations on the other side of the universe, to that spot that is 13.8 billion light years away from us today, and you stood there, you would see a new sphere around you, an observable universe, and you would see in all directions the cosmic microwave background radiation. The reality is that we don't know how big the universe is. It could be a hundred billion light years across, it could be a trillion light years across, and it could even be infinite. Right now there's really no way to know which of those it is until people have done finer and finer calculations and try to detect if there is any curvature to the universe to try and get a sense of, of really how big the universe is. Baron von Quipley. Hello Fraser, I was wondering if there are orbital traffic lanes or if it's just a matter of launching your craft and deciding how close you're willing to pass by another object. As Douglas Adams said, space is big, really big, but I can't help but feel as though Earth's orbital sphere is relatively cluttered. It's a little bit of both. Space is gigantic, and once you get away from really low Earth orbit around the Earth, it's, there's plenty of space today to move around. Like, for example, when spacecraft move through the asteroid belt, there's no risk that they're going to hit an asteroid. They've actually got to change their trajectory to try and go past an asteroid because the distance between these asteroids is so enormous. But around the Earth, We've been putting so much space junk into space that there are, at this point, tens of thousands of objects that are being tracked by NASA and then the Air Force. And 
probably hundreds of thousands, millions of particles that are even smaller, pieces of paint, things that have sort of smashed together. And the risk is that you're going to get this cascade. If you saw the movie Gravity, that's kind of what they were dealing with is this idea that these things will start to smash into each other and grind into smaller and smaller particles until you've got this kind of shield around the earth that's like a buzzsaw that anyone tries to escape. So that's the big risk. You can imagine as more and more space traffic happens, every launch has to be very concerned with what happens with the, the debris that they're going to be leaving in space. You have to account for every glove, every spent fuel booster, and make sure that it either deorbits back into the atmosphere or sort of deorbits back into the atmosphere or goes out into deeper space or is somehow claimed and dealt with in the future. Otherwise, we could end up with this time in the future when uh, space is too dangerous for us to be able to send spacecraft out into. And that's a really scary idea. Murder Vader. Seriously, want to enter a supermassive black hole just to see what happens. Yarg. The really cool thing, I mean, obviously that's suicide, don't do it. But the really cool thing about supermassive black holes is they're so massive that the event horizons are so big that you wouldn't even necessarily feel going through the event horizon. So you can imagine, say, the, uh, a supermassive black hole with millions of times the mass of the sun, it's going to have an event horizon that is as big as our solar system. And so you can imagine the spacecraft flying in and you're going to just pass through the event horizon and just keep going. And who knows what happens after that? You're never coming back out. You just have to be you know, you're trapped in the event horizon, but you wouldn't necessarily feel that transition as you moved into it. As opposed to, say, a stellar mass black hole, which is very smaller, that event horizon is much smaller, and the tidal forces that are going to spaghettify you are, are a lot stronger. And so that's one of the things that's fascinating. So the crazy thing is that you could, although, I mean, who knows? Once you cross the event horizon, there's possibly this firewall. There could be tremendous amounts of energy that are going to irradiate you once you move across this border. But from a gravity tidal forces sense, it's actually a very smooth trip. Uh, but don't, don't do it. Jackalakin. What would it take to terraform Mercury? Is it possible? It would be very complicated, right? The problem with Mercury is that it's just too hot. It is inside the habitable zone. There, there, it's just too hot there. So what you would have to do is set up some kind of shade that would, that would go between Mercury and the Sun. You have to keep it in place, somehow keep it at, at a Lagrange point to block the light from the Sun and cool down Mercury. And then you'd have to deliver it water and atmosphere and protect it and make sure that the sunlight never hits it. It's a lot of work. The better idea is that you destroy Mercury, that you bring down self-replicating robots, you tear it apart piece by piece, you take all those pieces into space and you build say a Dyson swarm around the sun and you harvest all that solar energy. So I wouldn't be surprised if Mercury is the first planet to get sacrificed when we start to become a type 2 civilization. Infant Jones. What exactly is specific impulse a measure of? Not efficiency, but how that efficiency is measured. Great question, and I've got a guest answer for you. Scott Manley. Scott, what is specific impulse? Hello, it's Scott Manley here. Now, Infant Jones was asking, what is specific impulse? Now, he knows that specific impulse is a measure of the efficiency of a rocket engine, but probably wonders why it's measured in seconds, for example. 
So in physics, impulse is the total amount of force applied to an object over time. So you basically take the force in newtons and you multiply it by time and you get this total impulse. Specific impulse for a rocket engine is the amount of force you get per unit mass of fuel you consume. And you know, that's pretty easy again. But uh, the reason why it's measured in seconds is if you go back to the early uh, rocket developers in the, the German program, they, instead of using newtons, they would use kilograms of force. So a kilogram of force is basically 9.8 newtons because you multiply a one kilogram mass by the acceleration due to gravity at the surface of the Earth and you get basically a unit of force in kilograms. So if you were then, say, to figure out the efficiency of a rocket engine burning a certain amount of fuel, you would measure the amount of force measured, multiply that by the time the force was generated, and then divide it by the number of kilograms of fuel produced. And guess what? The kilogram of force and the kilograms of mass in the, your equation can kind of cancel out and you're left with seconds. And that's why it's measured in seconds. And this had a knock-on effect of being incredibly convenient when they started working with NASA. And the engineers there were used to using pounds of force and pounds of mass. So again, specific impulse could be measured in seconds and they could actually agree on something. Which uh, is a shame that doesn't work for everything because of course Mars Climate Orbiter was lost because of a confusion between imperial and metric units. Uh, there's one other thing that's worth noting is that if you want to figure out the exhaust velocity given the specific impulse in seconds you just multiply it by the acceleration due to gravity either you know 9.81 meters per second or what 32 feet per second per second and uh, the seconds cancel out and you end up with a velocity and that's what specific impulse is thanks Scott for giving the answer that was awesome I really love getting these guest answers coming into the Q&A so I owe you one Scott that's it We've wrapped up another week. As always, wherever you are across our channel, go ahead. If you've got a question, type it in. I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. So we'll see you all next week.